Welcome to the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I am Sarah Kuchaya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. And I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer in law also at Swansea University. And today we bring you some news and discussions on the cyber law and security happenings of the last month. I will also say that the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. So we made it to episode three. Well yeah. done us. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't slacked yet. Yeah. And this week, this month, in fact, we will be talking about some content regulation issues that have popped up in the news. We will also speak about the Not Petia ransomware attack, which spread through the world uh, late late uh, in June. And we'll also mention the Alphabay and Hansa market takedowns. So, good, good, good. Shall we start with content regulation? Yeah. Okey-doke. Maybe we should say first what we mean by content regulation. Yeah. Uh, and basically as you would think, does exactly what it says on the tin. There's various types of cyber crime, uh, uh, cyber-specific crimes such as packing, cyber-enabled crimes such as fraud. Content regulation is a slight variant and it basically looks at how the law or non-legal uh, forms of regulation can actually control the content. So what we're thinking of is things like extremist material, pornography, those sorts of things. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's a widely acknowledged term, but it's a term that we use when we teach in cybercrime to, yeah. to Swansea students. So that's what we mean by content regulation. Fab. Um, so we've picked up a story, uh, first of all, from The Guardian, uh, titled Internet Firms Should Use Profits to Stamp Out Child Abuse Images, Says Police Chief. Uh, so the story is that uh, Mike Barton, who is Durham's chief constable, said that internet companies should reinvest some of their, quote, eye-watering profits uh, into efforts to stamp out child abuse images online um, and also called on social media sites to ban users responsible for uh, abuse uh, or harassment on, on their platforms and for, for that ban to be for life. So, um, yeah, so what what are your thoughts on uh, well, the Chief Constable's uh, call-out? I think, I think essentially his comments are lacking in nuance and, dare I say, might be construed as ill-informed. Right. Uh, first of all, it seems to me, some could argue, including me, to be a sort of derivation of responsibility. He's calling on... Uh, social media sites to ban users responsible for abuse images. Well, surely, you know, that might be something that they, is desirable to do, but surely he has a responsibility to also prosecute those people if their actions uh, violate the law. So I think it's it's not a considered opinion, uh, mm. sh- shall we say. Uh, he doesn't really go into details about what these eye-watering profits are. He refuses to name uh, the sites uh, who uh, are not investing profits in efforts to prevent um, child pornography uh, images. So I, I'm not. I don't think an awful lot of his comments. I think it's mm. it's fair to say, and there's already a very uh, well-functioning system 
which has generated quite a positive relationship between the internet industry ISPs and um, a sort of quasi-state body in the form of the IWF, the Internet Watch Foundation. Mm -hmm. Now, they do various things, um, and they have a very good relationship with ISPs to the extent that when they notify an ISP of illegal content within the UK, uh, then the typically that uh, access to that material is disabled within sixty minutes. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm sure ISPs could be doing more. But the tenor of of Mike Barton's comments is that they're doing virtually nothing, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they they're making vast profits, and they should be reinvested into technical solutions. That might be true, but he, he provides no evidence of that. So I think it could have been a more considered. Uh, view mm. on the issue on what is as always I say this every week on what is a very complex uh, issue uh, it can't really be reduced to simple sound bites I think yeah possibly that's what yeah, Mike Barton yeah. is guilty of there, <laughs> there was a, a an interesting bit uh, when he says uh, let's have a look yeah uh one of the quotes the the Guardian picked up is, if you can't police your system because it's too big, well, don't run it so big. Run a company that you can control. I think this statement that it, it doesn't understand mm. the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, it, and, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because. Uh, Obviously, the way we conceptualize crime and control yeah. um, is still in the same way that we did when you know it was about finding the person who who, who robbed you, who was probably mm. from your neighborhood yeah. or from you know somebody would have seen something. You probably would know the offender anyway. And the reality is, we were talking about that earlier. If you don't know anything if there's no connection between the offender of the victim even in traditional crime it's very difficult yeah. to for the police to to to, to get any results and i think um, he, by making that comment he, he totally ignores the realities the commercial realities of being an internet company yeah it would yeah. be a pretty odd uh, social media website that said you know we're taking 10,000 users yeah and then when we get to 10,000 we shut in down yeah. It wouldn't be a very commercially or long, commercially successful or long-lived yeah. uh, social media company if they had that approach. True, so, but it, I think uh, it's beyond that as well. Hmm. I think it's about the the uh, to use the uh, the academic uh, term that was uh, uh, made popular by a guy whose name I can't remember right now. But this this the network society, right? Hmm. I think the internet has fundamentally changed how we relate to people, how we connect with people, etc., etc., and it cannot be put back in its box. Yeah. It's not going back. Um, it is that time-space continuum collapse that people have talked about so much. It, you know, it's there now, and it's, uh, it's yeah, it, it's not going to change, and we, we can't make these companies smaller. We can't make the Internet smaller. Yeah. It's the nature of the beast that it is networked globally <laughs> yeah so um yeah but as always with the internet we've got a 
two sides of a coin, double-edged sword, whichever metaphor you want to use. And of course, the fact that it's networked, the, ca- the fact that it's global and interconnected and difficult to police is also one of the big benefits of the exactly. uh, of yeah. the internet. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's fair to say we weren't overly impressed with, um, <laughs> no, with uh, no, the Durham, no, no, Chief no. Constable of Durham Police's um, uh, uh, comments yeah. on that one. Another thing he pointed out was this emerging trend for live streaming of child abuse. And we talked about that last time yeah. with respect to terrorism uh, content uh, or, or extremist content, I should say. And, uh, and the technical difficulties that come with that. Yeah. And the fact that currently there isn't the technical ability mm. to um, identify something that's being streamed as mm. being illegal content for it to be disabled. Well, this might even be one stage beyond that, because last time we were talking about video content, which is posted, yeah. and having no equivalent of Microsoft Photo DNA to pick up on extremist videos... But when you're talking about live streaming, I mean, they might be recorded and then uploaded at a later date. But while the actual streaming is going on, that's that's even more. Mm-hmm. That's a different technical problem or more advanced technical problem altogether. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so he, uh, as, as we discussed before, uh, he could have been far more nuanced in his views in the sense that, you know, there's hopefully technical fixes to some of the problems associated with child abuse images on the internet and that you know it might be a good idea is a good idea for isps to invest more money into uh, researching how to develop these technical fixes but obviously he went on the more uh, sort of um as i said soundbite route of this thing and they're making these eye-watering profits they should be reinvested uh, you know, and implicit in that is that you you know money will solve the problem, and you know it might not. Yeah, so. yeah. Although to be fair, we also don't know to what extent the reporting of this uh, is uh, is doing the, justice to what he true. said on the yeah. record. He may have said yeah. a lot more than what was actually. His views might have been taken out of the context. Yeah, you always yeah. Ha- you always yeah. have to uh, um, uh, acknowledge that. <laughs> true. Uh, great, shall we move on to the yep. next story? So there was another story um, also from, uh, oh no, this one is from the BBC. Uh, the title is YouTube to redirect searches for IS videos. So we're still in this topic of uh, content regulation. Now we're talking about uh, extremist material. And the story is that people searching for certain terms relating to the so-called Islamic State group will be offered instead playlists of videos, quote, debunking its mythology. So, uh, yeah, so we're all familiar with how YouTube works. You search Mm. for something and it it suggests then other videos that you might want to watch. And I, I, my understanding is this is what this would do. Yeah, Um, so it's a sort of algorithm that... Yeah. Yeah, so if anyone knows YouTube, if you search for videos relating to... I don't know, I can't think of an example. Cats. Cats. (laughs) uh, Then the the suggested videos will be about cats. So... Yeah. And that's the sort of... That's the way it essentially works. Okay. 
Yeah. So, and, and then rather than uh, producing new material or or maybe linking to government sources, um, what what these playlists will contain uh, videos uh, which have already been uploaded to YouTube in in uh, in the past uh, uh, that present an opposing view to to uh, what IS propaganda will will be putting forward. So. Uh, things such as testimony from people who have left IS describing what life uh, was in, in the group was really like, uh, footage of uh, uh, people who have, have suffered uh, the, the, the consequences of confronting IS fighters on the ground, uh, speeches by imams denouncing violence and extremism, and footage from inside IS-controlled areas showing the reality of life there. So... Uh, yeah, so so these will all be uh, so redirects to to content that's already there, and uh, uh, yeah, I guess like, we we talked about this in the last mm-hmm. podcast. This uh, idea that there there are two approaches to dealing with extremist content online and on on social media. So we've got a more uh, hard approach which would be based on regulating uh, uh, the industry yeah. and and also the, the consumer in, in terms of access um, and then we've got a more soft approach which is focused on developing these counter narratives uh, so this it's interesting that YouTube is uh, is doing this um, we talked a lot about the difficulties of, of regulating the content which is linked to the previous story, mm. you know, the technical difficulties, yeah. uh, uh, the fact that there isn't one particular type of content, even, mm. you know, that, you know, so so we talked about how uh, maybe some propaganda from IS will be depicting the uh, ideal uh, uh, Islamic state. So there is nothing inherently violent about no. that content. Uh, so how how do you develop yeah. a technical fix for this? You know, mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we talk and of course about... these groups know this, yeah, and are nuanced and subtle in the messages that they they convey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I suppose this story then highlights a difficulty with a soft approach as well, which is how do you create or how do you put forward content which will be recognized by the people that you want to to uh, uh, to target with this with this counter narrative as being legitimate or credible and not just western mm-hmm. propaganda yeah. so propaganda of, of a different kind uh, so it's interesting that youtube have, have kind of picked up on that and are uh, uh, instead of creating new content for the purpose of, of the counter-narrative. They're picking up on sources yeah. that may be perceived as as uh, credible by by uh, the communities that are mm. targeting with this. Um, yeah. And presumably that's all been done by a change in their algorithms, which produces the, the suggestions, the playlists. Yeah. And we it's one of these things that's always incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to demonstrate any positive effect but you think you know it can harm Uh, and if it you know if it this moves a small percentage of 
of people away from extremism, then it's it's well worth doing. Mm-hmm. I wonder how they identify the content that goes on these playlists, though. Um, they have a a list <laughs> yeah. of videos that are suitable counter that yeah, provide that's... suitable counter narratives. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, presumably they have. At the very starting point, they have people who who, who can recognise a counter narrative when they see it. Yeah. And then and then you know, um, they would then pinpoint certain users who have you know uploaded videos who this might all be rubbish. I have no clue how they do yeah. it, but yeah. I'm just thinking, um, yeah. who, who target certain users who have routinely upload material um um which can be used as counter narrative. Material and maybe they do it that way, but I don't know. Yeah, is the honest answer. Yeah, I don't. maybe someone could get in touch and uh, <laughs> and let us know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. I guess uh, they need to know what works as well as a counter narrative. Yeah, um, well, that's very difficult. Hmm. Uh, that that's that's an empirical question. Is hopefully being addressed and and, and and from the the conference that we mentioned last time the terrorism and social media conference that we we both attended it's clearly a question that's being addressed but i don't think it's one that there's a definitive answer to yet mm-hmm. about what works what doesn't in terms of a of a, of a counter narrative um but you know obviously you would assume that it would be things like you know i've lived the isis nightmare yeah. And this is my, you know, views of it. It might be, as you said, a man's, you know, I'm talking about a more moderate view of, of Islam, etc. But I think, as we said, in order to avoid the problems of the soft approach, it needs to be someone who has legitimacy and credibility. Mm-hmm. There's no good having a Western government-produced video which will just be dismissed by ISIS and the person watching it as, as more... Western propaganda, it needs to have authenticity. I think that's what's quite useful potentially about this approach is that it is people who have that yeah, authenticity yeah. And, and credibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder to what extent as well. I mean, uh, there there are uh, there are various different schools of Islam as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I I wonder, you know. To what extent this focus on uh, imams and community leaders, I often wonder how how much they're recognised as such from within communities mm. because it's not one Muslim community. No, there are many Muslim communities. Yeah, and the UK, you know, in Wales even there there are a number uh, of different communities, uh, and they are very different. You know, mm. in terms of uh, the cultural heritage, yeah. the the, the like this, the sect of Islam they follow, uh, so to speak. Um, um, yeah, and I, I, I often, I don't know. I obviously, I, I, I am, I am rather secular myself. I don't, I, I don't uh, follow any religion. So um, perhaps I, I don't begin to understand. But it, it's not often that that you see a focus on, you know, just regular people. You know what. You, we always go for the community leaders yeah. rather than than 
uh, and this is true of all news media yeah. in general. Yeah. You know, it's always the community representative, yeah, right? and yeah, you, you yeah. very often, very rarely uh, get to hear the, the voices people, of people the people. People are referred to as a, a respect, a, you know, a respected leader of the. Asian community, the gay community, yeah, the Jewish yeah, community, yeah. It's, 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 as if as, you know, as if this is almost a tangible thing. Yeah, when we we know it's not. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, just just a couple of thoughts. So I think in general we we you know compliment you too. We think it's. Yeah. Uh, I hesitate to say this, but probably can't do any harm, and so therefore, is either does nothing or does good, and let's hope it's the. It's the latter. Brilliant. Okay, so I think we can move on to the next story. Um, it was a big, a big story in the last month. The Not Petia ransomware mm. attack, which spread. This is from uh, the the Guardian reported this, and the the, the BBC. Um, also, uh, so what we what we've Sorry. been yeah. quickly developing it seems is a sort of ransomware section <laughs> yeah. uh, to our podcast. So the yeah. first podcast was exclusively about wanna uh, cry uh, ransomware. Now there's another. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to be the in vogue method of. of uh, conducting a cyber attack in, in the last few months. Definitely, definitely. I think it's we can have a ransomware of the month yeah. section. <laughs> and Sarah's far too modest to admit this, but uh, in a, uh, a PGR postgraduate research forum some time ago, she actually highlighted this as the upcoming the trend. The trend yeah. that's about that's to occur. Right. So well, that that was about a year ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I called it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So it's, it's um, now a matter of public record. It is. It <laughs> is. Um, so the, the, the NotPetya ransomware attack, uh, it, it was, it, it's an interesting one uh, because it had a massive impact across the world. It really was like WannaCry, you know, it was a, a, a global uh, ransomware issue. Uh, companies like TNT, we had stories uh, in, in this this one story in the Guardian titled TNT parcels backed up to ceiling in wake of massive cyber attack. Uh, talk about two thousand plus individuals and organisations worldwide affected, um, and uh, uh, companies have seen uh, a, a very concrete impact in terms of losses and impact on productivity. Uh, so uh, uh, TNT themselves uh, s- saw their uh, share price going down by uh, more than, than 3%. And uh, they, they mentioned not having insurance to, to, to cover for this attack. That's um, an interesting one, because you think today, in a modern context, particularly large companies would have some form of insurance cover hmm. Against cyber attacks. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't think it is that uh, common yet. Mm. The the Department for Media, Culture and Sport (DCMS) they run the survey um, on on its second year. They run it. It's called the Cyber Breaches Survey, and it came out. I think it was a a month ago or so, um, and they 
they reported they so the survey they surveyed over 1500 businesses in the UK and they they weighted everything so that the the sample was representative in terms of the sectors that they were covering mm. as well as the size of the companies uh and they they found that very few companies mm. had uh cyber insurance and out of the ones that did i can't remember off the top of my head now but i'll, uh, I'll look it up and add it to the notes out of the few that did have insurance only four individual companies had actually attempted to claim on it okay and part of the qualitative because they they also did about 30 interviews with some yeah. of these uh, companies and part of the qualitative results uh, was that the cyber insurance market hasn't developed yet to the point where there is a good business case for companies to be taking out these policies. Okay. They haven't been trialed and tested enough. Yeah. They they seem to create very onerous... Uh, so the cybersecurity measures yeah, so, from the policy so, holder. Yeah, yeah, in terms of the standards, yeah. uh, companies seem to not be too happy about what's being expected okay. and what's being excluded from the policies yeah. as well. Uh, so, the, so the yeah. you know in the in the risk reward analysis that yeah. the companies carry out yeah. uh, they probably think well it's not worth us paying these premiums and then having these onerous obligations pay, placed on us and companies still don't see the business case for having this coverage. Yeah. It's an interesting survey, actually. I'll I'll add the link to the notes because it it demonstrates that whilst most companies have been breached in the past year, statistically, the kind of loss that is associated with that, there are huge average losses, hmm. but that's down to a small number of companies that experience very high losses. Yeah. So basically, you know. A lot of companies are being targeted, but very few are suffering any consequences. Yeah. But if you are one of those few companies, then the consequences are pretty huge. Oh, okay. Um. So yeah, that's kind of what it what it says. But we digress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're talking about uh, not Petia. So uh, TNT, another another company that has been impacted. In a, in a huge way is the 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 group uh, called Reckitt Benkiser, who. So could you could you mention <laughs> them again? Reckitt Benkiser. Okay. And they are based in Slough of all places, but they they're the company that produces Neurofen and Durex, and it's been reported that their forecasted growth. So the forecast went from three to two percent, uh, because of 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 this uh, ransomware attack, and that that account that that amounts to about a hundred a hundred no ten, yeah a hundred million pounds of lost mm. revenue, uh, so so huge impact this has had. So you should say this is a forecast. Yeah. So their their net True. turnover revenue next year. Yeah. Has has been the forecast has been reduced from three percent to two percent, which, given the turnover the company would, if that follows through, would be a hundred million pound yeah. in lost uh, revenue. So, yeah, pretty yeah. significant. Uh, yeah, a, a loss for for one attack. Yeah, yeah. 
And the, the interesting thing about the stories is how, how it spread and what has happened since. Because, uh, first of all, you can tell by the name straight away, it, it's been nicknamed Not Petia. And, and the reason for that is because the, the ransomware masqueraded as this other type of, of malware or ransomware, Petia. And it was believed that it was a strand of Petia and then people realised it wasn't. The guy who designed Petya was very keen to exonerate himself from any responsibility mm. <laughs> of the havoc this was causing. And eventually it was traced back to a software upgrade on a, a tax uh, software in Ukraine. So it was there that it started and of course then multinational companies that operate in Ukraine that file taxes mm. in UK in the Ukraine would have been uh, infected in that way and from there it spread and it mm. spread to their operations elsewhere and then it spread to even as far as you know hospitals in the US because of course in the, in the context of the global economy um, if a hospital or a, a, a smaller company is using the services of these suppliers, mm. these multinational suppliers, uh, they, they're potentially in, in, mm. in, well, they're in the network. <laughs> so um, so that, that's how it spread. It, it really does demonstrate, doesn't it, how interconnected the world has become. That something as skewer as a piece of tax software in Ukraine yeah. can cause worldwide damage and, you know, cost businesses literally hundreds of millions or potentially hundreds of millions. Yeah, yeah. And I guess one of the stories that uh, I picked up on was from uh, Jerry Bell's blog, Infosec Engineering. He, he wrote a blog post called Not Petia, Complex Attacks and the Fog of War. And the blog post is about what happens in the immediate aftermath of, of, of something like this uh, starting to spread. And it was something we discussed about wanna cry and it's the same with this one where there was a lot of confusion immediately after this started spreading mm. and it was reported that it was spreading via uh, phishing a phishing attack and of course then you may get companies like with wanna cry one of one of the nhs trusts here in wales that shut down their emails mm. thinking that's where it was coming from when when in fact it wasn't uh and that has an impact then on, on their ability to, to carry on with, mm. with their activities. Uh, and unnecessarily sometimes, yeah. perhaps. Um, Hence the fog of war part yeah. of the blog. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess with this one, because it was also masquerading as something else, it yeah. added to the confusion in that uh, it was thought that it was this particular type of malware and then it wasn't. Uh, so yeah, do you have any other comments on on this one? Not really. I just like I said at the beginning. I think it's striking how common this has and this has become. Yeah, yeah. And it might become one of these things that's. I said I have no comments, and now I'm commenting. But <laughs> it, it might be one of these things that's self-perpetuating. So as there's more and more stories of ransomware. Uh, then it suddenly becomes 
a good idea for people who might be thinking of this of some sort of illegal activity. Yeah. Um, and as far as I'm aware, and you know, not many people have been caught for spreading this uh, software. No, no. With with this one, actually, um, there was definitely no point in paying the ransom <laughs> because it wasn't mot- motivated by uh, financial gain, mm. and we can say that. Uh, with confidence because the the mechanism that was inbuilt into mm. the ransomware to collect payment yeah. um what wasn't working basically yeah. um so it, it it has been assumed to have been a state sponsored yeah. attack on ukraine so it's a pretty you know in that sense then it's a pretty weird form of ransom saying <laughs> to someone you, you know yeah you know Pay ten thousand pound, and I'll give you your relative back. Oops, I've already killed your relative. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it it, it couldn't have been if it were, if it was motivated by profit. It was a very poorly designed <laughs> piece of software. Yeah. 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 No, I mean the the industry um, uh, news have said that it was actually fairly sophisticated in terms of the ransomware itself. Okay. And for that reason, I don't, I don't think it was a, an amateur mistake okay. on the part of uh, whoever. So we're talking it. possibly state-sponsored, yeah? Possibly state-sponsored, okay. yeah. And so we, we'll leave our listeners to uh, speculate <laughs> as to uh, who or what uh, might be behind it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was another big story this month. And I guess we'll move on to our last story. And hopefully this time we'll we'll actually keep good time with our podcast and not go on and on and on forever. We live in hope. <laughs> uh, so the other big story was the Alpha Bay and Hansa market takedowns. So these this story it was picked up by news media uh, all over the world. We've got one from from the BBC, but I guess you'll, you'll find it. We'll find it everywhere. The FBI took down the Alpha Bay Marketplace. It was a website on the so-called dark web facilitating the sale of illicit products and services so that this would have included drugs, weapons, malware, stolen data, uh, you name it. And according to Europol, uh, this was a pretty big marketplace. They had 250,000 listings just for illegal drugs and toxic chemicals. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice have also said Alpha Bay had more than 350,000 listings overall. And this is huge com- compared to, for example, Silk Road, mm. which was a, uh, an illicit marketplace taken down back in 2013. They uh, allegedly only had 14,000 mm. when they were seized. So, yeah, pretty big. Uh, what else can we say about this? I guess... If people are wondering what it means, the, the marketplace on the dark web, yeah. uh, it might be good to clarify that. So they they look a lot like your Ebays or yeah. Amazons, similar kind of systems, uh, but they're on the dark web, <laughs> which which is basically uh, a term to mean a a network which can only be accessed if you download particular. Software, Soft, yeah. Uh, so, and there's some reports that the dark web is actually as big, if not bigger, than the the light web. Yeah. Although I'm not sure that's a term yeah. that's used, but um, <laughs> there, there is a term. What is it? Um, I don't think it's dark web. Uh, light web. Hang on. 
The regular um, web, whatever. Uh, the, the clear net. The clear so net. The dark oh, okay. net, the clear net. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Um. <laughs> and actually, um, I'm not overly familiar with Alpha B. Right? <laughs> Don't take that out of context. Um, right. But obviously Silk Road was the archetypal um, site, which did that mainly in drugs. Yeah. I think possibly, I'm not sure on this later, laterally then moved into some arms dealing, but it was largely drugs. And it was a very, very sophisticated system. It was essentially like eBay. You'd buy the, the drugs were listed at a price. You could bid on them. You could buy them now. Um, you would give that seller a, 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 a rating. And the system actually worked. Because uh, some time ago, we um, hosted a conference here in Swansea about uh, the, the dark web and Silk Road and other illicit uses of the internet. And there was a chap here who was talking about Silk Road. And someone asked a question to the effect of, well, why does it work? And people who, who pay money in Bitcoin to Silk Road just worried that the the potential seller, the putative seller, just takes their money. And his response, well, that can happen in the real world. Mm-hmm. with the added danger that you turn up to the drug dealer, he takes your money, you don't get your drugs, and he beats you up in the process <laughs> yeah. and leaves you in a dark back alley for dead. Mm-hmm. So at least with this system, that extra element of of the danger and risks associated with purchasing drugs was removed, and actually the system worked very well because people who had a bad rating, their sales dropped uh, um, considerably. So, you know, in a very oversimplified nutshell, what we're essentially talking here is is an eBay for illicit goods, goods yeah. that cannot be purchased uh, legitimately in any other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess the important role in terms of the transaction that's being played by these websites is to act as a... They, they provide that extra layer... Mm. So what what happened on, on Silk Road and what happened on Alpha Bay as well is that the, the payment wasn't made directly by the buyer to the seller, but it was made via... Yeah. So the act the, as an intermediary or broker, whatever term you want to use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it it gives that extra... It, it enables trust to be developed yeah. within, within the marketplace when we're talking about illicit goods, which, yeah. you know, trust... It is always uh, is uh, yeah. Well, you've got no comeback. You yeah. can't report, yeah. You know, a fraud to the police on the basis that no. the Kalashnikov you ordered didn't arrive. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, the the five grams of heroin uh, was never delivered. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you need these systems to circumvent that problem and allow these websites to to operate, and they they do. Well, as you can see, the, by the vast amounts, they operate very, very yeah. successfully. Yeah. So, um, I'll I'll pick up on a blog post written by uh, Dr. Alice Hutchins from the Computer Lab at Cambridge, um, uh, who who is actually one of the speakers at our Cyber Network Conference uh, in September. So, looking forward to having her here. But she she's written a, a blog post um, analyzing the the police response in these two cases. And sort of endorsing in a way, you know, that, that it was it was a, a, a clever and interesting police mm. operation. 
she draws on on a paper that she wrote with Tom Holt, who who is an authority when it comes to these illicit markets, uh, back in two thousand sixteen. So what happened was the police staged it to appear like it was an exit scam being perpetrated by the people who ran Alpha Bay on their customers. Mm. Uh, so because these markets hold the money in these transactions until the transaction yeah. is cleared by both parties as having been successfully completed, by going off air, by disappearing, the money that was in that limbo situation yeah. would have gone with them. So they, they staged it to be uh, an exit scam. And they also coordinated, uh, this is the uh, US Department of Justice and, and Europol was also involved, coordinated with Dutch police who had also taken over at the Hansa market, which was a separate market, and they they sat on it for a while. So there was some movement from people who were on Alpha Bay to Hansa market as well as an alternative. But of course, that had also been taken over mm. by Dutch police. Yeah, so Hansa was seized and monitored for about a month before it was deactivated. And yeah, so, so what they did, the, the, the police uh, strategy was to to try and promote distrust within the market, because like we were saying, that's the appeal of these markets, yeah. is the ability to, to create trust between buyers and sellers. And any any capitalist, any commercial lawyer will tell you that you need trust to transact. Yeah. So if you, you know you need trust, you need certainty, and by undermining that, you undermine the entire marketplace itself. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, with, before taking taking it down completely... Um, they they took over these marketplaces in order to obtain as much intelligence mm. as possible um, before taking them down. So um, yeah, it's a, a an interesting an interesting. What it also shows as well, if you look at the sort of history of these illicit marketplaces, is the the almost unstoppable tide that law enforcement agencies are, are facing. You had Silk Road that was shut down. You had Silk Road Two, that was shut yeah. down. Then you have Alpha Bay. Then you have the Hansa Market. So it's almost like a balloon. You you squeeze it in one part, and something pops out elsewhere. Yeah. Um. So it is very difficult for law enforcement officers. Um. But it's always been the same in the offline world. Um. And in yeah. that respect, I don't think the online world is any different. You, you know, you shut down one cartel in Colombia and then another cartel will fill the vacuum that is, is, is created. So as long as there's a demand for certain illicit products, there'll always be someone who's prepared to take the risk to, to fill it, yeah. which is a sobering thought. Yeah. And you might think, well, let's just all pack up and go home then. But, you <laughs> you know, you, you can only do what you can do. But on the positive side of this story, it shows that there was a lot of international cooperation. You mentioned the Direct Department of Justice, the FBI, Interpol, the, the Dutch police, etc. So, you know, a global interconnected problem needs a global interconnected solution. So on the positive side, although this is a positive story, I'm just saying that you know, this might is yeah. not going to be the end of no. illicit marketplaces. No, no. Uh, that I can say with, with certainty. But in terms of the positives as well as the fact that this site was taken down and uh, um, 
albeit temporarily, it'll probably pop up in a, another form or a different site will pop up. It does show that international cooperation can work and can produce results, yeah, yeah, but yeah. is, I guess, incredibly expensive, time-consuming uh, in the process. Yeah, that, that reminds me of uh, a paper that was uh, written by a colleague of mine here in Swansea, uh, Martin, Martin Horton Edison. He, he's a researcher with the um, Global Drug Policy Observatory here at Swansea, and uh, he's recently written about this escrow process that these markets operate um, and it, it, it just highlights this idea that, you know, the criminals will adapt yeah. to whatever strategy yeah. the, 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 the law enforcement takes, really. And in this case, you know, they, they, they were able to, to take over these websites and compromise the transactions because the, that's, this escrow process is centralised. So it's this, this website that takes the money from the buyer uh, and passes it on to the to the seller, but these markets are already developing in in in, in a way now to to decentralize this process. So, mm-hmm. so the funding is not being held by one central server. Okay, you know. So, uh, again, <laughs> so perhaps in the future, even if law enforcement is able to take over a particular. Mm website particularly web web server perhaps they won't be able to to uh, uh, stop all of those transactions from from being completed um, so yeah his uh, 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 paper can can be found on 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 the GDPO website and it's on on Twitter as well um, it's very interesting it's called updating escrow dismystifying the CDM multi-sig process CDM stands for crypto drug market um, and you could add a link to the description i will, I will do i will do <laughs> uh yeah so do we have any other news no that's it oh um, I, I i have a piece item just i like yeah. for, for those of a technical nature of a certain age um surely you want to join me in lamenting the passing of microsoft paint Yes, I saw that. Yeah, which, you, you know, when you, from certain people of my generation, when you first had a computer as the easiest program to operate, <laughs> was usually your first interaction with a uh, with a PC. Yeah. And uh, if you if you Google um, Microsoft Paint, and there'll be lots of stories there, but there are some actually remarkable paintings that people have done uh, with it you know there's 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 brilliant copies of the Sistine Chapel ceiling and there and all sorts so I take a look at that and if we can create a groundswell of support uh, (laughs) then Microsoft might keep uh, Microsoft paint yeah yeah but certainly an end of an era yeah very sad yes yeah there were some cracking uh, images circulating on social media actually yeah I did see that Brilliant. Well, thanks for that. Okay, no problem. <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening. This is the end of this month's episode and we shall see you next month. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>